Hey gang, welcome to episode 206 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro studio, aka the kitchen table here in Los Angeles, California. This week on the show, we have Dan Rutstein, who is the president of Laduma. Laduma, which is a full spectrum immersive technology company uh, based in both uh, the United Kingdom and the United States. More on that in a bit. Uh, more on how we met Dan in a bit. First, let's uh, let's jump into middle of things because that's how we do around here. And suddenly, I find the urge. Um, we are, as the the really observant are <laughs> tracking, uh, we're in the middle of uh, some change changes uh, because uh, Catherine, our beloved uh, executive editor, is uh, going to grad school and picking up stakes and move into Los Angeles to do that. And New York's loss is Los Angeles's gain, but it also means that, you know, uh, we're juggling everything around. People are trying on new roles. I'm like doing more of the social media. Uh, it's, it's exciting. Um, it's terrifying. It's weird. Um, but one of the things that's happening is I'm uh, back on the hot seat for Everything Immersive this week. Now, if you don't know what Everything Immersive this week is, it's probably because uh, it just happens every week. And uh, I had gotten kind of complacent about its existence and don't kind of draw our attention to it all the time, which frankly, um, boo on me. I should have been doing that. EI this week is a weekly post that Catherine has been doing for a long time now um, that started out as a post that I was doing where we take the highlights of the week, uh, stuff that was interesting in our Twitter feed, uh, stuff that got some buzz around on Everything Immersive, which is our Facebook group, and contributions from a whole bunch of folks in the community, and we lay it out there. It's like our weekly wrap-up. It's sort of your Saturday morning read, so if you want to find a way to catch up on everything all at once, that's the thing to check out. Um, it comes out on the website there at nopersidium.com and goes into all of our social feeds and indeed goes into the Everything Immersive group, which has like well over 6,000 people in it right now and just is trucking along. I wake up in the morning and there's like 10 people knocking on the door, which is terrible because like eh, first thing in the morning, like I just do not want people walking on my door. No, no, no. Um, the point is, is that if it's all too much for you, and I live this, I get it, it's all too much for me sometimes, then the best way to find it is there in EI this week. And now that I'm responsible for it again, um, I'm like, oh, what else can I do? So one of the things I'm doing is I'm putting in a now funding section where we're going to put a little spotlight on crowdfunding projects that are related to immersive, both immersive theater projects and escape room related projects and immersive technology projects anything that is in the domain. So if you or someone you know is funding something in the space, right? And you listen to the show, you should know what the space is. If you've got something, send us the information, pitches at nopersinium.com, just like you would if you were telling us about a show and say, hey, 
this is something for EI this week we're funding, or this is a cool thing that is now funding. And it'll go in the now funding section. And it will stay, unless we get like a million of them, it'll stay in the now funding section until something uh, either funds or the funding period closes. Now, if something's not using a time to funding, we'll, we'll give it like three or four weeks before we close it out. So uh, that seems fair. Um, there's only so much space in these things anyway. I mean, technically it's infinite, but attention is space and space is attention. While I have your attention, let me draw you to the center ring where I want to point out our Patreon. On? <laughs> why, why did I like fail halfway through that? Our Patreon? Our Patreon, which is doing... Um, doing what it needs to do uh well i mean what it needs to do is like 10 times what it's doing and then we'd be a real boy uh but it's moving forward as opposed to moving back which is really good because if it moved back i'd be in a lot of trouble um i was gonna make some very dark jokes but i won't because i'm too scared um we are up to 241 patrons and 1437 dollars which means we are very close to the 1500 mark which is our next big tr trigger uh, which will then start us socking away the uh, travel fund for the team. 10% will get tithed over. So I really want to push well beyond that because uh, I'm paying my rent with this right now. So once that hits, it's like, yo, I got to put money in a bank account um, other than my landlords. I mean, let's not get started on landlords. Uh, mine's fine, but still landlords. Our three latest backers are Ava Lee Scott, Erica Willett, and Rachel Birnbaum. Thank you so much for jumping in. Uh, some folks jumped in at the $9 level, which is the new level that gets you uh, the irregular and the shout outs and all the normal stuff. Um, it just costs more because you like us. And people were saying, I want to give you more money. And I'm like, I want to take your more money. And if they want it because they want cheaper consulting, it's like, well, you, you, no. If you want consulting, hit me up, Noah at noprecinium.com. That is something we do. The rates are flexible i was about to say reasonable um reason's always in the eye of the beholder so um you know an independent artist who's doing something non-profit uh versus someone uh who is uh you know making a corporate thing i'm gonna charge different things um if you want to know how i am as a consultant uh maybe talk to siobhan lachlan and jeremy barber uh who uh did a thing this week uh siobhan uh, mentioned uh that uh yeah, she was like, oh, can I write something up? And I'm like, oh, don't, don't. But now I've sort of called them out. It's like, hey, uh, check with them. I, I just consulted for them on some stuff. So um, check my references is what I'm saying, right? I stand, I stand by what people think of me. Oh, God, I just said that out loud. That's really bad. Getting the robot Shinji. Um, okay, so now that I've made it a, a no longer obscure enemy reference, let's press forward into the future of immersive technology. Immersive technology is on my mind a lot these days, um, not just because I've got an Oculus Quest sitting in front of me. Oh, let's go play Beat Saber. Um, not just because I have an Oculus Quest sitting in front of me uh, that I finally plugged back in after taking it to a 4th of July party, and I'm like, yes, I remember, I love this. Um, not only that, um, but SIGGRAPH is coming up and that's going to be interesting to see where the future of the future of the future is heading. But also right now we're at this, um, inflection point where we're, we've stuck our heads out of the trough of disillusionment again and are looking around and it's like, yo, is this, can this happen? Could this be a thing? And we know full well that it's 
gonna happen. It's just a matter of timelines and whether or not the planet's still around. Um, maybe just the robots. Robots enjoying VR and AR. I mean, frankly, if they're a robot, can they enjoy anything but AR and VR? I don't know. I'm not a robot philosopher. What I am, however, is a giant nerd for all things immersive, period. And on the technology side, I'm always interested in innovative uses and uses that aren't just there because someone said, hey, we can do this thing, but because they saw an effect that they wanted to create a connection between people or a connection between people and places or people and themes, most importantly, a connection that could be best served by employing some of this immersive technology. There are a lot of people who are bulls on this. There's people who are bears on this, but I'm most interested in the people who are kind of sober on this. And when I was at um, Digital Hollywood uh, about a month, month and a half back, there was a panel that our friends from the Wild Optimists were on along with some other folks. And one of the people on that panel was Dan. And I just thought he was so sober about this stuff. And he wasn't pushing a particular type of technology. He, he wasn't being like excessively negative about VR because secretly he's like doing a bunch of work in AR. He wasn't denigrating AR because he's trying to sell headsets. This is a guy who runs a company whose function is to make things for clients that connect with people. Now, they do have a dome. And Dome's a big part of what they deliver on. And they've got an emphasis there. And if you know me, you know my relationship to Domes are kind of rocky. But I've I've never written Domes, you know, all the way off. Because most of the time, it's just that I'm not seeing it used right. I think there's a massive potential for that technology when it's deployed correctly. Because it's really a matter of... What relationship are you trying to create between the people inside your dome and what's on the dome? Or maybe even things in the dome and on the dome. Dan and I had a fantastic conversation that we uh, held in Ferndale in Griffith Park. So you're going to hear some exterior stuff. And at one point, a kid just comes by and wants to say hi. A toddler just walks right up, puts his hand on my shoe. (laughs) <laughs> sitting down and it's like okay um and you'll hear that moment too because you know what i do i just you know hit record and then i walk away well not i mean i'm there but you know what i'm trying to say so we're both handling the microphones and so that's the way the audio is this time out and if you are an angelino or if you're visiting visiting los angeles and you haven't checked out uh ferndale over in griffith park it's really nice and Trails Cafe is like right at the end of it. Uh, and if you want to get a serious hike on, you can then go up into Griffith itself um, and get yourself up to the observatory. It's truly, truly a magical place. And with that, let's go visit it. Stan and I have a conversation. This is always just a conversation. It's very loose and informal. We've, in some ways, we've kind of already started. Yeah. Um, uh, just so everyone knows, as you're listening, and I'll probably say this in the cold open, so I'll probably cut this. Uh, we are outside in uh, Ferndale in Griffith Park. It's a lovely day, and it's a lot better than <laughs> in my house where things are not smelling right right now. Anyway, um, 
I'll probably put that in the cold open. So here's where we'll actually start. So Dan, um, maybe you could just start off uh, in in the most basic ways. Well, I think we'll we'll hop into the conversation we were having before we turn the microphones on. Uh, but maybe you could just give the the classical elevator pitch. Like, what is who and what is Laduma? I think the first thing I'm going to say is when I chose to stay in Los Angeles after I left the British government. The idea that I'd be sitting in a in Griffith Park, sitting on a bench, doing a podcast, feels to me like exactly the sort of reason why I chose to do this. There is no, there's nowhere else in the world where two serious people would do a serious podcast, semi-serious podcast, <laughs> outdoors with the babbling brook behind us. This is exactly why I love LA because this is real work, and yet we're sitting in a beautiful place. I I gotta admit, I was sort of happy the the confluence of events that led us to kind of needing to record outside today i'm like and and it was last minute where i was like where are we gonna go i was like oh "Mm, why don't we just go down to ferndale (laughs) no it's great and obviously i'm gonna get into this a bit later when i talk about some of the technology that we've got but actually the fact that we're sitting in this beautiful outdoor space immersed in countryside means we will have a better more relaxed conversation as a result and i think that's part of what we as a company are trying to do but also what people in this industry is trying to do it's take people to a different place now we physically come to a park but you could have we could recreate this scene and we could sit in the middle of a busy new york office and recreate this because that's what technology is but anyway i'll get but get back to to laduma so we are we're effectively a storytelling company we're an immersive tech company who tell stories in a variety of different ways now we like to describe ourselves as a full-service tech company, so we can immersive tech company. So we do everything from consultation through to the creative. We do software, we do some hardware, we do events, we do data analytics, and we do evaluation. So we play across the different areas of immersive tech. But at the end of the day, it's all about sort of providing content and canvases to tell stories in different ways. And those stories can be for brands at trade shows. They can be um, they can be helping companies. Uh, or manufacturing companies do their processes better. They can be creating immersive experiences in in restaurants, in conference rooms. It's just about taking people into a different place and a different experience. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was it was I saw you on a panel at Digital Hollywood, and you were on a panel with uh, Juliana Patel of uh, the Wild Optimists, and there was there was a there was a a number of different kind of points of view in there, and there was just something sober about kind of your approach. It wasn't, there's some folks on that panel who kind of like had like, you know, uh, sky is falling chicken little attitude sort of some of the pieces of tech or they, they, they were maybe very married to either AR or to VR. Uh, and you were coming one cause you're, you're not a technologist. And I want you to talk a little bit about like how you landed here. Cause it's a really odd pattern um but you also there's a vibe of sort of agnosticism on a a different piece of tech or even just when we were talking before you you were talking about like when you're talking with clients and like you know trying to make sure they're getting getting the most for what they're trying to do so yeah Yeah, i mean you know as a company we are we're platform agnostic we're technology agnostic because for us, it's about telling the story. So we have dome technology, we have immersive projection technology, we have AR technology. But when a client comes to talk to us and says, can you help us? We don't just say, do you want the red headset or the blue headset or the big dome or the little dome? We say, what is your? what are you actually trying to achieve? What is your objective? What is your goal? How do you think, what will success look like? And then we help come up with a solution 
And that solution may well be a combination of technology. It might be it might be a dome with some AR inside. It might be a dome where we're using AR to keep the line happy while they're waiting for their turn to go into the VR experience. It might be using immersive projection. We're not wed to a particular technology. And that's an advantage for us because, A, I think it helps us solve the client need better because we offer a range of solutions that play across the whole of this immersive tech space. But also, as the world moves forward and it's moving forward quickly, when new technologies come into play, we'll be ready to move with them rather than being stuck with a whole load of hardware that no longer applies anymore. I think for me, my non-technical background is an advantage. So um, I was a sports journalist for 10 years. My last job was working in Bermuda, which sounds like the best job in the world. And in some ways it was, but not sustainable for a a grown-up long-term career. So then I joined the British Diplomatic Service, which I worked in for a dozen years. And then I left last year. And when I was looking for a new role... I talked to lots of companies in lots of different industries. All I wanted to do was work in an interesting job in a leadership function with some link to Britain. That's all I wanted. And I came across this company, Laduma, who've got offices in Salt Lake and in Liverpool. So we're the transatlantic company. And their technology is, is clever. But more than that, the, the corporate culture and the, the way we approach problem solving makes us a really interesting company to work for. So... In the nine or ten months that I've been with the company, I've sat down with clients from a whole range of different sectors, and we've just sat around talking about what they may or may not need to solve their problem. And some of the solutions are technology that we already have. Some are blending a couple of our technologies together, and some are things we can't yet do, but we know how we could probably find a way to do that. And for me, that that range, that range of abilities to effectively help the customer with whatever it takes to do so that's the appeal for me of this company and when I sit on a panel and I'm sitting next to professors and people who've got lots of letters after their name or who have grown up in this industry they're at an advantage technologically as it were but for me I'm just looking at what does the client want and how can we help them as opposed to I know a lot about exactly how AR works and what the technology is and therefore you're going to want one of these three different products that we sell. What kind of problems are clients coming to you with? Because I think sometimes, particularly when, when, when we come at it from the angle of either the tech press or the entertainment press, um, there's such a focus on what's new and shiny and trying to get that trying to get that buzzword in like i'm using immersive technology for what we're doing right now and like isn't that so cool and then you go and you see that they're they're just slapping some ar or something and they're slapping some vr onto something i'm sure sometimes clients come asking that kind of question but when when things kind of click for you what are the problems they're trying to solve what's what's that thing underneath the surface of we just got to do something different and I think, and I hope any clients or potential clients listening don't take this the wrong way, but I think there is a, there's a lack of understanding often by the, the buyer of what, they, of what they want. So, and we had somebody who approached us and said, uh, we want to show something to our workforce at an internal marketing event. Um, and can you, can you give us a quote on what 200 headsets would look like now? Somebody wants to do VR, whether it's them or their boss says do something VR because that's the future. And they were trying to show their staff something that had not yet been invented. Um, but that's what they wanted. They wanted 200 headsets. And we said to them, okay, that's one option. How about 
you know, a dome or a number of domes or even immersive projection to turn the room into this alternative environment. Now, in the end, we were timed out. They actually didn't do the event they thought they were going to do, probably because they kept going around asking people if they wanted 200 headsets or not. Uh, and now we're talking to them about a completely different technology to solve a different problem. But I think, and, and maybe I shouldn't say problems, because sometimes it's not a problem. You know, we've, my favourite brief, and we've had it twice from one of our clients, they've come to us and said, we're going to this trade fair. Can you do something that's never been seen before at this trade fair? which is a sort of scary brief in some ways. Um, but for us, we saw that as a sort of challenge that we wanted to take on. And so the first year they asked to do that, we came up with a dome. Now, obviously, domes are not entirely new, but a full VR dome, so projecting everywhere, not no hole in the ceiling for the projectors, projecting directly onto the screen, so the only thing that's missing is the floor. And the way we project and where we place the projectors was something that hadn't been done in that way before of a dome of that size. And all it was was they were telling a relatively straightforward story, but they wanted to do it in a different way. So theoretically, we could have just had half a dozen video screens. But obviously, by doing it this way, it became a completely different experience. And their clients came in. They were immersed in the story in a completely different way. And that upped their engagement rates. That gave them the chance to show off their innovations in a different way. And then the following year, they came to us and said, right, same trade show. Can you do something that's never been done before? Again, which is fine. Um, so we did. So we, we tried something with immersive projection where we did a very clever, basically plain white trade show stand where we did live rendering projection onto 24 different screens. And we had a bear that, when you walk towards it, got up on its heels and roared at you and some deer that ran away and fish on the floor that swam away from where you were walking. And again, none of those technologies in themselves are new. Other people have done versions of that. But putting them together in that way to tell a story was, was new and clever. And we were the, the talk of the trade show because we had something completely different because we had at one stage it was a forest and a flick of a switch became a mountain rescue scene. Everyone else had some very elaborate, very expensive looking stands, which were versions of um, expensive two-story stands with nice furniture or fake chandeliers and all the things people spend money on at trade shows. But ours was genuinely different and told a story in a completely different way. And again, up the engagement levels. So their problem was, how do we make ourselves the talk of the trade show? And we used clever immersive tech to, to reach that goal for them. I haven't found that, like, I was, I was having this conversation because there's, um, oh, by the time this runs, I'm sure, um, there's, like, a, a grant going out there that uh, a large grantor is doing. And I was talking with um, uh, an editor of another publication who's having me come in to, like, write some stuff about immersive tech. Uh, because it's a grant involving using immersive tech in like uh, museum settings, right? This, this is a rather large foundation, and they're they're looking for proposals from artists who have a museum to work with. And I keep coming back to this, like, you know, people people want to take something like AR, or they want to they want to take VR, or they they want to take the new thing, and like sriracha, like. They just want to slap it on the thing and say, oh, look, we put in checkbox. We, we got the thing and we're good to go because we've we've done we've done the immersive tech part. And they aren't necessarily thinking about what experience they're making for people or how you could even deploy technology that's already fairly ubiquitous or surprisingly ubiquitous in order to create 
an immersive experience. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's a question attached to this as much as an observation that, that feels like to me, like that sort of this, the, the baseline set of things. Yeah, I think that's right. I am constantly amazed at how much money is wasted on immersive technology. So for us, obviously there's a huge market opportunity because lots of people are spending lots of money, but and maybe I'm being a little bit naive here, but I always feel some kind of sort of moral obligation to those spending their money that they should spend it in a, a, a less ridiculous way. So there's a lot of buzzwords. You can imagine companies, particularly maybe old-fashioned companies, having meetings and in a marketing meetings, someone says, well, we should try some of this newfangled VR stuff. And then you know they Google VR company and they get some stuff and some headsets. And it doesn't really quite work for all the reasons that things don't work out properly if you haven't really thought through the customer journey what you're trying to achieve how you're going to measure it all that sort of thing and you either see it in sort of just bad headset experiences and i think the headset experiencing it's the obvious place to go if you want to do something in vr you do something in a headset um and that's and that's fine because headset to- technology is in a place where that's an, a relatively easy lower cost thing to do now but that doesn't necessarily solve the problem or create the opportunity that you think it does but then also, rather sadly, you see huge experiences, and we were talking before about these, and I'm obviously not going to mention the one, but you, know, you go to a show of some kind, and they make some quite basic errors. They say, here, come to this amazing immersive show, and they don't really use the technology properly, and you know the budgets must be huge for that. So I, I feel like, you know, with Ladoom, obviously, you know, we're a company, we want to grow, this is the modern world, I'm in the private sector now so money has to be made so obviously I want to do the right thing for our clients and make us some money but also I feel like if we can go some way to helping people stop wasting money I think that's good for the industry more broadly now I'm not saying everything we do is perfect but I feel like we approach it in the right way you find out what they're really trying to do you know actually do they really want headsets or do they want a VR experience that doesn't require headsets, so using immersive projection or domes to have some kind of social experience in a different place without the need for headsets. Actually, when they say VR, do they mean AR? Because some people don't know the difference. Actually, is it a combination of the different technologies? And I feel, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hold it against anyone who's made lots of money from a bad project, but I feel like, A, you should be proud of everything you do as a company, but also if you can help the clients get the best value for money, the best return on their investment. See, that client and other clients will want to do more work with you. But as I say, as an industry, I feel we should we should try and protect clients from bad decisions. And this industry is, although it's been going for a few years, obviously, there's still a newness to it, which means people are making bad decisions. And I feel like we should be better at the buyer beware stuff. Yeah, there's a, on, on the, it's funny because like, there's so many there's different facets of the industry of the in the immersive industry and ones that we're starting to kind of crack into on the show and and covering in no pro is there's this not just the consumer facing entertainment side but there is the kind of stuff you guys are doing which is things in the enterprise space that's going to trade shows there's things around training there's a lot of training stuff happening in vr that's the the deployment of some of this tech into the enterprise um, in order to transfer skills or orient folks is is seemingly effective. Like the money's being spent on it, if nothing else. And then there's then there's just you know the things people haven't necessarily thought of yet. But 
so much in the in the entertainment space, people are trying to measure the the stick against, you know, against an iPhone, against video games, against television or movies. And because it isn't instantly there, they're just like, oh, well, no, this is this is already dead. I mean, I remember when I remember when this was two weeks ago, like three days after Harry Potter Wizards Unite came out, there was already um, things being put into my inbox that was is augmented reality dead. Right. Like Harry Potter Wizards Unite did not do as good as Pokemon Go did. AR is is AR dead? And the actual piece was like, no, no, AR is not dead yet. But like that was the assumption. It, it it's a really funny industry, and I, you know, bearing in mind I came from the outside of this industry, when I was in government, my job was to help British companies expand into America and American companies in in the UK. You got out the right great time. Though. Yeah, well, that's that's a whole different conversation. Um, you know, I used to work in every sector, so I'd do energy one day, automotive the next day, and then tech. And I remember this thing, people you kept saying, I think the first year I heard it, I think maybe 2015 was the year of VR. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously it's been every year since. And there's lots of big heralding of these things. So VR is alive, AR is dead, AR is now the next big thing, VR's, you know, back to life again. And, you know, you can't obviously judge the success of an entire industry based on success or otherwise of one computer game and, and also the views of individuals playing that game. I think both industries are incredibly strong. Every survey you read about the different valuations, and I'm wary of quoting them because every single survey has slightly different numbers, but all of the, you know, I think the last one I read, the AR industry is now worth 34.5 billion, and I'm not quite sure what how they capture that, but right. the numbers are all of these sorts of size. How can they be dead? Um, and also, how can an industry like AR be killed by one computer game? The, the, the uses are incredible, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's gaming, whether it's uh, using AR in a factory to take steps or risk out of a manufacturing process, um, whether it is signage or tourism. There are so many uses for it. And the more people have mobile phones and the faster the broadband speeds, the more people are going to have access to this. So AR is the opposite of dead. And I think, you know, VR is also the opposite of dead. So yes, headsets are expensive. Yes, as a company, we're doing more non-headset VR experiences than we're doing headset experiences. But then we are still doing headset experiences yeah. because we've done some work with a company training uh, heart surgeons on a new technique. And if ever there's a time you want people to be isolated and to be able to concentrate, it's for a heart-related <laughs> surgery. But then also, if you want a group of people to do something together, you want to take the headsets off so they can do something together. So these industries are more than alive, and the creativity of companies like ours and the many other companies in this space and the agencies and the brands will ensure that these in the, these technologies will keep being useful and creating ROI in all sorts of different ways now and going forward. What do you see right now from your position uh, that's an interesting technological nut that that looks like it's about to crack? Um, I go back to like a year or two ago when there was this potential around volumetric capture. Uh, which now seems to have been kind of pushed back off stage uh, because some of the bigger players in the space have just like, yeah, we're not gonna we're gonna buy some stuff and then put it over to the side. Uh, so I'm curious as to what you're seeing, kind of waiting in the wings. 
So obviously health warning as a non-technologist, but I think in terms of what our clients are talking to us about, I think when you can do more AR experiences without the barrier of a specifically designed app, I think that's going to make a huge difference. Mm. So at the moment we'll talk to a client, there will be an AR opportunity, and whether that is some kind of marketing play or some kind of play um, in the enterprise space, the barrier is nearly always some kind of app. So, um, you know, if you want to do some cool experience, you need to download an app to do so. And people just don't like downloading apps unless they can win a prize, they're going to get something particularly exclusive, or there's children involved in some way. Mm -hmm. Other than that, people don't want to download apps. So when you can start accessing AR through browsers in a much more accessible, faster way, I think that's going to make the creativity that AR offers uh, an easier, lower barrier entry play forward. It's actually interesting you should say that because like I, when I went to Meow Wolf and you know, caveat, they were a sponsor at the time uh, and it may be again, but when I went to Meow Wolf, I, um, they, they have an, uh, they have an AR app uh, that interacts with like, you know, some RFID things they put around. Um, they call it the anomaly tracker. And I, I was so interested in the physical space I was in, like I didn't spend a lot of time on on the app. Um, and the same, I spent more time, uh, Disney's got their Play app, which you can use in the park, which they've specifically designed to be, they're using like Bluetooth beacons and everything else to, in order to originally just like help people kill time in line. Mostly because I think they watch so many people playing heads up in line at Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. They're like, hey, we can we can brand some of this stuff and like keep it, keep it in the family and keep money flowing. But at Galaxy's Edge, they've like t- turned the whole thing into like a, a big game. And so kind of like the Harry Potter ones, except just on your phone. Again, I spent some time in it, but not necessarily as much as someone who games. I, I was expecting maybe to spend a little more time in it and I'm probably go on a run specifically for it. But um, the, the, I'll get those or like some artists who have made like an AR app, uh, like Nancy Baker Cahill's made something called fourth wall, which is actually kind of really cool. And when she does an installation, you can like go check it out, and there'll be like a, 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 v, a AR version of something she made in VR. Um, but then at the same time, it's like now all of a sudden there's all these apps on my phone. Just like, oh, here's a bunch of apps, AR apps, and, and or even going to something where I go to a, a single gallery thing and there's like four different apps. Well, okay, just two. I was exaggerating. But there were two different apps I needed to download onto my phone in order to interact with the art at the gallery. And at a certain point, just and some of them big downloads. This is a two gigabyte download. Like what? And I think I think that and that's it. I think obviously AR is amazing. And if you've got an app, if you're you know obviously, I don't let my son do Pokemon Go because he's he's going to get obsessed by it and then he's going to ruin my life. But um, my roommate, you know, if if you've downloaded it and you're happy to play it, that's fine. But you know, to get people to download something, yeah. it's a it's a huge barrier. Unless, like I say, there's there's a reason to like they can win something. They're getting something so exclusive they don't mind or there's something that their children say please can you download this mummy or daddy and then you're more likely to get them to do so but the barrier is high and I think you know when we talk to clients about AR see those who know know that we're going to say and you need an app but those who don't when we get to the and you're going to need an app that can often be a barrier now look there's ways around it a you offer some of the reasons why people would want to download but also you you provide screens for people. So we're talking to a couple of museums about experiences where obviously you have a preloaded app on 
the iPhone or similar, sorry, the iPad that's existing in the museum, and then they're accessing it without their own app. Um, we're talking to a restaurant about a version of a very clever thing where the chef appears on top of the menu and tells you what the specials are, but you're using their app in order to do it. So there are, you know, there are workarounds, but once it becomes ubiquitous that somehow you can see through your phone without an app, either there's some kind of universal app that soaks them all in or somehow you can do it through the web in an easier way, I feel like that would remove a lot of barriers in the AR space. Not in terms of the quality of the things that you can do, but just in terms of the number of people who will be able to access that particular experience because the having a specific app just becomes a barrier to entry for that particular experience or offer. I know that like the way Magic Leap talks about their plans for global domination you know they talk they talk about that ar layer as uh, the the magic verse and so i think that company recognizes that whoever controls the the distribution platform for ar objects winds up having a very big say in how reality itself is defined Mm. um and i just i keep on thinking back because i remember the first the first time i messed around with with ar Gosh, maybe it was like the iPhone three or four even, and it was the Layar app, L A Y A R, and this was in the days of you know Foursquare and oh, there was another one that was better designed, but like, and and just you know the idea was that we were gonna geotag up the street, and so you could walk out onto the street and hold up, and you could see like geotag signs, you know for you know, whatever street you're on. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, like 500 feet away is that restaurant. And you take your phone down and you go, oh, look, 500 feet away is that restaurant. Like it, it didn't, it didn't necessarily add something yeah. to it. Um, and yet it feels on a certain level obvious that if you could, if you could lower that barrier of accessing that data, um, that like hiding things around the world or, or adding a narrative layer or adding it's an informational layer. I mean, when I first heard about podcasts as a thing, now we're talking like what, 2001 or something like that. Heck, I think it was before nine 11. Uh, when, when, when that first came up, I instantly flashed on the idea of like, Oh, what if we could do them, you know, um, in physical space and then have it be something that someone could like, if they wanted to go to the place and then walk around and kind of experience mm. that. And I've, I've gotten to experience that kind of thing, uh, you know, it's in the form of pod plays or in the form of, there's a few apps that do like walking tour stuff like this. It's never quite caught on. No. Um, there've been some interesting art projects on it. Um, but again, I think some of it's just like, bandwidth level where you know yeah. easily accessing I think something's bandwidth level and also you know it's the classic thing is I'm going to get the quote wrong from Jurassic Park now the thing about just because you can doesn't mean you should, should. Yeah. but you know if you look at some of the technologies around AR you know yes geotagging sort of random objects will be quite cool for until the novelty wars off and then you you know why did you bother doing that but obviously you look at companies some of the things Blippar was doing before his yeah. demise, you know, you hold your phone over a bottle of ketchup and it tells you the ingredients. You know, actually, that's not unuseful um, if you want to know the ingredients. And, you know, being able to get deeper access from a leaflet, you know, the sort of AR versions of QR codes, all that stuff, you know, if you've got the right ideas, you, they can be real value. But it is, it comes down to the, the download side. So, you know, we've talked to companies and they say, oh, this is really clever. Can we add into our existing app, you know, 
these clever Princess Leah-style hologram videos, for example, which is one of the things we're working on at the moment? And the answer is, not really. It would, it would ruin the rest of your app or make it so big no one would download it or the functionality elsewhere wouldn't work. So you need a, a separate app. And I think, I think that's, that's a barrier. When that goes away, that will change a lot. So I mean, I, mean, I know you've been asking lots of questions. I'm going to ask you a question. So oh, apart sure, from yeah. this one, apart mm -hmm. from this AR app question, what for you is the, the big technological next leap which will change how this whole world works? It's funny, I mean... For me, it's all about getting things into the volume, right? Um, I used to be really into the term voxel, volumetric pixel. Um, in fact, one of the first essays I wrote about immersive as a whole, both immersive theater and, and immersive tech, was about, uh, I referred to it as voxel punk, right? So moving beyond cyberpunk into voxel punk. And when you mentioned Blipper just then and like reading like a ketchup bottle, I flashed on, oh yeah, and if you can like, mix some of that with like kind of the, the tango type, you know, tech where we're able to like understand how big of a volume are we actually looking at? Like how much more useful it would be to like squirt a bunch of ketchup onto a plate, whip out your phone and be like, how many calories is that? Right. Yeah. You know, how much, like, what am I, what am I really looking at? You know, um, what, what is this tree? Like, you know, I think that might be eucalyptus tree. So I recognize it, but like, you know, like I walk around with my mom who's like, you know, like in her seventies and like, one of the mental faculties she still has is like she's able to like the plant she knows she recognizes is like oh I think that's a this and that so I'm learning a lot about plants um, and that sort of that part of the, the data layer you know like can we do things that will that will enable stuff that would actually be kind of basic right like I don't need to elaborate I'm I'm really interested in can you tell me about the world as it is yeah and obviously there's there are versions of that so you go to a museum and you can hold up a your phone with the app right. on a you know work of art and it will tell you you know when the artist was born and died and you know what his inspira his or her inspiration was for it and there are obviously bottles that come to life pizza boxes that come to life but yeah to have something which just sort of works on everything and that was a blip on model i mean i a friend of mine used to work there so i downloaded the app out of courtesy and also because it was a british company and that was sort of my job and i remember I used to sort of randomly pull it out and it was sort of sort of you hold it over something and be like yes that's a table and that's yeah. fine you know i can sort of see it's a table but <laughs> when it all worked Theoretically, when the content was all there, it would have been really useful yeah, just to like identify falling down that plants hole. and what's that yeah. statue and all of that sort of thing. And also, you know, the future version where, and I, know I think, I think Blippol were looking at this, this sort of LinkedIn in real life thing. So you hold up your phone and I see you and it pulls up maybe not your LinkedIn profile, but whatever your profile. Yeah. And there are companies who are doing versions of that stuff, but that would add real value. If you're in a if you're at a networking reception and you can hold up your phone oh, also, and also see lots of people. Though. Yeah, it's right? absolutely horrifying. Yeah. And also um, I'm old school. When I used to I used to host lots of receptions and events when I was a diplomat and my team were obsessed with um, uh, name badges, yeah, and I hated them for a couple of reasons. One so is why? waste of money and bad for the planet. Yes. But also for me, it took all the skill out of networking. Absolutely. I used to like going to events and have, knowing that I knew who nobody was and just randomly talking to people. I always like they give me one of those badges. I put it on my belt. Oh, yeah, I, like, know, I, I hide it. I try I refuse flip and it around. People go like, "Oh, it's flipped around," and it's like, "Uh huh." Yeah, my team know. used to think I was arrogant because I refused to wear one, so I assumed never knew who I was. But that's not what it was. Mm -mm. It just takes all the skill out of it. And I think in a future world where 
you know, you can actually see who people are on their profile. I think that takes the fun out of it. Well, and then, I mean, see, I, uh, science fiction kid here. So I'm always thinking about, you know, what's what's the version when when AR is built into everything we do, what's the version of blocking someone on social media? And it's just like editing them out of reality or more importantly, editing you out of their reality. Yeah. So like, I just want to disappear from like, you get a court order. It's like, so-and-so can never contact me again. And then somewhere, somewhere down in the central dogma, someone types in a button and suddenly I disappear from their life. And there's yeah. this hole. No, indeed. <laughs> and the thing is when sometimes when asked the question, you know, what do you think? What, where, you know, where's this technology going? I feel like it's a lazy answer, but sometimes I feel like just watch every episode of every season of Black Mirror and there is your answer. Because actually there is one episode where Mm -hmm. you can be blocked out, but you can't be seen or see the Archangel episode where your children aren't exposed to certain things. You name it, Black Mirror has basically, it's genius work. I I gave up on on writing science fiction stories once Black Mirror was in ascent because it's like, Charlie Booker's just going to do everything. And then it it becomes true like six months later. Even the most absurd stuff, we were like all, oh my God, how did you predict that? That's insane. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a very entertaining show, but it shows you how the technology can be used for good and for bad and the sort of... Mostly for bad. Take, mostly for bad, <laughs> which may be sort of the point. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think everything that's in there is basically either something someone's working on or is going to happen at some stage. And yeah. there are the technologies for you. And this is what happens. Yeah. You know, you lose all of the human contact. And I think it goes goes back to what we're trying to do as a company. You know, we're a storytelling company. So however cl- clever our technology is now... Or in the future, at the end of the day, it is about um, empathy. It's about it's okay <laughs> intimacy. It's about storytelling, <laughs> just in a different way. So um, it's about rewarding curiosity, like that small child that came over and decided to like you know. They wanted to hear about the future yeah. of technology <laughs> from two serious people. But I think <laughs> at the end of the day, if it's about storytelling, it's about human contact. So if you look at the why some of the things about volumetric capture work so well and some of the cleverest VR experiences are it's it's things where you can be part of the story and you can make eye contact with yeah. the characters they're the ones that feel the most realistic so we just want to tell stories and use the technology in whatever way we can to better tell human stories or brand stories or experiences so that 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 quality of connection right i mean that's that's for me what underlies when we start talking about immersive as a practice um the you know it, it kind of doesn't matter if there's people in the space or not but well non-participant people in the space or not but if i'm going to plug a participant into something that's immersive then it's all about the relationship of that audience member, participant, customer, however they want to view that individual, right? Whatever the the company. The important thing is that they remember that it's about the relationship of that person to what's going on in that volume. Um, Everything else is secondary, right? If the focus is on presenting a bunch of information to them or presenting a performance to them, you've stepped away from what's immersive. It's got to be about what is that person's experience of that world. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think... So if you're sitting in a dome and you're doing yoga and you're doing it on a mountaintop now, you know, you're changing their experience of a yoga session they could be doing in a studio gym, but you're now putting them on top of a mountain to enhance their experience of what you're trying to do. And an example I gave on the panel that you heard me speak at, and I think I do this on every panel because I'm obsessed with this, uh, and we haven't done it yet, and we're going to do this as a company. Uh, so I, I love whiskey, uh, Scottish whiskey particularly. 
and I drink lots of it and I've been to distilleries in Scotland and they're amazing and if you can go into a dome and you can look around and you can be in that distillery and you can smell the smell of that distillery and then drink the real whiskey in real life no headset because you're in a dome so you don't need it that is enhancing the experience that you're having rather than just drinking it on its own in a different city and for me that whole mixed reality where you're you're not ne- sometimes you're taking someone away from something but sometimes you're adding to an experience they're having anyway so if you can mm. if you can drink real whiskey but be in Scotland that's the next best thing to actually being in Scotland yeah set and setting yeah you know, just i mean we were talking a little bit earlier about um you know doing things with physical things inside domes and projecting in there and i was telling you about a, a thing i saw at calarts with the projecting on the floor and this is flashing right now. There was a, there's a, um, God, I will forget her name because it's been eight years since I've seen the piece, but there was an Australian artist. Uh, Fleur is her first name. The rest of her name I can't remember at the moment. Um, who was doing this incredible work where uh, she would, she had projection mapped out um, these, these, these sort of roomscapes. Um, and then she performed inside of them. And there were sometimes projections of her uh, performing inside of them and she was kind of moving around behind the scenes moving things around and so the and everything was sort of draped with like a muslin tarp right uh but like things could deform because she could move things around and rearrange the stuff that was underneath the room and it was absolutely amazing and had this kind of weird very very cinematic quality it felt like a, a a living film that had like broken out of the 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 proscenium bezel of 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 a film screen and I keep on wanting when I'm in a projection mapped space where I'll like, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll watch like a performance of uh, Mimo Matraic or maybe I'll see something that um, a dandy punk has done. And I, I'm fascinated by those performances because it's these people who've trained themselves to kind of dance with the animation. But I'm interested in what happens when you're using connect sensors or Primus sensor, where they're branding it now, and we're projection mapping, and we're able to take something that's, you know, I, I, I just saw that distillery, right? And like, yeah, we're gonna be in a dome so we can kind of control the lighting and the mood and the scent and the smell and not get other sensory inputs, but then have physical things in the space, but then, you know, use projection to map onto it so that what I'm seeing not just on the wall, but but physically out in the the middle of the volume is what I would be seeing there, and kind of taking that step over towards the holodeck. Still gonna need, you know, actual tables. Still gonna need to be able to like skin that stuff somehow. But yeah, without someone having to like shove a magic leap on their face, but just finding some way to sort of subtly do. Or maybe that's the thing. Maybe maybe it has to be a pair of goggles so we can skin it. You know, and people would talk to me about. You know, I don't necessarily get excited about AR storytelling because I'm I'm kind of maybe more interested in the the full occlusion that happens in VR. It's like I don't want to I don't want to like you know do a murder mystery dinner theater party in the bar I'm in. I want to be at the cantina in Star Wars, right? And like one either requires that we build a full set or it, to do that, either build a full set like they did at Disneyland or you slap on a VR goggles and you're good to go. Or you do something like they do at The Void or, or Dreamscape where it's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're fully occluded, but what you're seeing is one thing and you're, you're touching some basic plastic stuff. Um, but this idea of like, can you put people into a volume and sort of skin 
skin it so it looks different than what it is and be able to sort of change the channel. That stuff, that'd be, I'd like to see that get cracked. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, and we, we've already touched on this, you know, the science fiction stuff at some point ends up, or versions of it become reality. You know, the whole science of Star Trek thing, half the things in there, apart from the transportation, yeah. uh, the, you know, the beaming around, half of those things happen. I mean, some of them are really basic, like the flip phones, but some of it are a bit more adventurous. But, you know, the whole holodeck principle... Um, I watched the Orville. It's one of my favourite shows, mm. and their holodeck there. You know, that's there's a version I am sure at some point in the future, and it probably is wearing some kind of device. But that version of the future, we're all playing at aspects of that at the moment, um, and it's even if you never get to that ultimate goal, if that's the version you're trying to get to, how can you make the most realistic, most mixed reality version where you've got You've got presence within the experience. So whether it's you can see your body, you can see your hands, whatever it is you need to see. Or actually because you're not wearing a headset, but you're immersed in a space and then there's things presented in front of you, maybe through some kind of lens or screen so you see things that aren't there. You know, that's all what we're aspiring towards. To give people a chance to be immersed in this new experience or to you know better tell the story that you're trying to tell because again going back to this whole thing even the holodeck stuff you know there's stories that are being told it's just how much you're immersed in that story yeah there's there's a dimension here um this might be too much to crack into because we've got to wrap up not too long i imagine but there's a there's a dimension here of um i mean this stuff back to the black mirror you know like this stuff can be used in kind of screwed up ways as well and do you worry about you know the technology pushing forward i mean we we're in this era right now where people people have access to all sorts of media inputs and the media literacy of the population as a whole seems to be chugging at about 0.5 percent uh like people really don't get how the tools work or what editorial process is and you're someone who's been a a, a journalist and a diplomat and now you're running a technology company like is is are those aspects of of this stuff does that concern you to get worried by it i think so and actually not because of those three things but as a parent mm. so it's obviously it's not immersive tech yet but my wife and i have an incredibly strict rule that when we take our kids out for dinner to a restaurant no devices so they're seven and four they read books, they write and scribble and all that stuff, but no devices. And, and, and this isn't a judgment on other parents because the golden rule of parenting is don't judge other parents, but you look around a restaurant and half the kids there are on an iPhone or a tablet, or worse, they're on a tablet and they've got headphones in. And that doesn't feel to me like a healthy thing. And in five years' time, will people be going out for dinner and their kids are wearing a VR headset? Uh, maybe not for the actual eating part because they may struggle to find their mouths, but you know, rather than just giving a tablet until the food arrives to keep the kids quiet, you know, are they going to be in headsets? Actually, you don't see it very often yet, but you see, I've been on an aeroplane and I've seen people wearing a headset. Yeah. Which, you know, you don't see them sort of in the park, but there'll be a point where they become more and more people using this stuff and isolating themselves. So there is an element of risk there that people can hide in the technology and you know there are these 
kids, I think, who live in basements, who play computer games all day, who want to be their avatars and don't interact in real life. And you know, I've got nothing against esports and gaming, but there is an element where it becomes unhealthy. And there are people who've died because they've forgotten to eat for three days because they were busy playing a game. Yeah. Um, so I think that you know there are there are going to be risks to the technology, but that's not the fault of the technology. But I think there needs to be an awareness about this stuff and. I don't know all the detail of it, but somebody was trying to tell me the other day about uh, somebody who works as a sex therapist who was saying that there's a disproportionately large number of people who have now got issues related to the fact they're used to doing sort of VR porn and are struggling to have relationships in real life. And that feels like a very worrying trend for society. There's a whole way in which... Our, our sheer access to every imaginable experience at the push of a button has fundamentally altered what we expect of the world, which often means what we expect of other people. Um, I feel like one of the first steps is to like not expect like of, of recovery from that is like not expecting that of other people. Like, I'm, you know, we, we've got one of the rules in EI and in, in the, in the everything immersive group when the literal rules is like, you know, do not expect a timely response from anyone about anything. Right. Um, and even though I don't think, I don't know how many people actually read all the rules. I get to see anyone and I may have missed it in a thread or two because sometimes the threads go toxic. Um, I've yet to miss someone getting in a huff because someone was responding fast enough to anybody. Um, and I just, that alone, the way that like what was an asymmetrical technology became a uh, simultaneous, uh, asymmetrical, like asynchronous, sorry, the way an, an asynchronous technology suddenly became, we, we modified our behavior uh, in order to adapt to the way it was instantaneous, as opposed to taking advantage of the fact that it's just waiting there for us. Yeah. Like, you know, no one ever wigged out if you didn't get back to their handwritten letter within like 24 hours. Like the assumption was, it's gonna take a while. Like, why haven't they written me back yet? It's like, cause it's in the mail. Um, and there's this there's this function of, um, I can't remember the name of the writer, but he dubs uh, the irrationality of rationalization, where we just expect things to go faster and for things to be immediate because a computer is going to be able to respond that way yeah. to us. I think that's what I, I, I guess I'm showing my age now, but I remember when Pokemon Go first came out, I was, that at was a, like, that was like three years ago. You're really old. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, we were, I was at an event. I was hosting a training day. I think it was in Dallas with 30 people from one of our teams in, when I was with, in government and, We'd organised sort of three days of programming. We had a sort of, the last evening was a semi-free evening. Mm -hmm. But I organised, I think actually we had a team day out to watch a soccer game. So not everyone's cup of tea, but it wasn't about the soccer game. It was about a sort of trip out. And I think three or four of the team said, oh, we're not going to come. We're, we're going to go and do some Pokemon Go. And A, I had no idea that people I worked with did it because I thought it was for kids. Yeah. And these were, you know, they were early 20s, but they were still adults. But they chose to go hunting for Pokemon near this hotel in Dallas because they all came from different parts of America so there was going to be a you know a rich vein of new pokemon to find rather than go out with their colleagues albeit to a sports event they might not enjoy but it was about the hot dogs and the drinking and the team bonding and they would rather play with their computer games but not just play with the computer games 
it was the AR element. It wasn't like they were going to sit in their room and play, you know, with a headset on playing Halo. They were going to walk around, yeah. but interact with a, you know, an augmented environment. And I just, I felt old that night, but also I realised that's the direction you're going. And I refuse to give my, let my kid play Pokemon Go because he will, there'll be a stage where he'll only want to go for a walk if we've got the phone out. Yeah. Now, you know, we're sitting in a beautiful park with a babbling brook behind us. We're living in LA. There are amazing hikes that you can do. The idea that my son will only come hiking if he can bring his phone and look for artificial characters does not feel like the world I want to live in. But yeah. there was a phenomenon there. People thought it was good that their kids were walking. Kids would go on walks and the phone was the way you get them to come. That first week it came out, I saw grand potential because I was like walking around Culver City and I would see a group of people who I did not know and they were clearly playing and you know you'd be like oh there's a there's a there's a Charizard around the corner over there look really and there suddenly there was a way to like connect and it was before before everyone they put all the information online right and then there came a moment where like everyone put that online everyone knew and people stopped talking like for a hot minute there and this is actually something that happens a lot with augmented reality and alternate reality experiences that somebody goes and they put a big spreadsheet up of here's where you can find all the stuff and you no longer have to interact with another person if you want to do it and in fact you're better off reading the spreadsheet than you are asking advice from a random passerby because the spreadsheet's going to be have more accurate information than what's being handed off to you but for that hot minute, there was this this potential for there to be these like spontaneous human connections. And then I went away and I came back and went on a, a work trip. And when I got back, I saw there was like these clusters of people hanging out in a spot where it was known things were spawning. And actually, I came out of an immersive show. I like literally the day I flew back from something, went to an immersive show, stepped out of that show, and there was this collection of people outside. And there was like three or four groups of people in front of a church playing and they were not interacting with each other at all they didn't need to talk to these other groups they didn't need to trade stories they had gotten their information online and that was it and i think so going back to some of the stuff that we do if you're trying to isolate somebody to train them then headsets are great but the reason that social vr is such a big thing so you look at the success of a company like the void right. whose stuff is clever because it's it's you you know you're deep into a different world Ghostbusters stars whatever it is but at least you can see versions of your friends around you um, that's where there's so much potential so people want to have the immersive experience but they want to still be social and for me like I say unless we're doing some kind of training application for somebody if somebody says I want to do a headset experience if we can say to them actually what are you trying to achieve here's a way either via a dome or immersive projection where you can still have the immersion but people can still interact for me they feel like healthier solutions to our clients concerns than just stuffing a headset on somebody with headphones and then they disappear into that world so obviously you know if, if a, we're not going to say no to a client if that's what they want but if you can push people in the direction of a more social version of VR, if I can, with eight of my best friends, drink whiskey in Scotland in somebody's dome in LA, I would much rather do that than put on a headset and on my own be in that experience and not quite be able to find where my mouth is and spill lots of whiskey. The last thing you want to do is spill a bunch of whiskey, particularly on a, on a $200 headset. That's just, that's just wrong. Although now I really want to see if I can drink while I'm wearing my Oculus Quest. So <laughs> that'll be my next live stream experiment, <laughs> drinking in Quest. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for uh, 
joining me in the Dell today. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be immersed in the nature while talking about immersion that's not in nature. <laughs> Once again, I want to thank Dan Rutstein for being our guest on the show. You can find Laduma at thinkladuma.com. Um, hey, uh, now's uh, my part of the show. I did about 10 minutes at the top, though. So um, there's a new edition of The Irregular this week that goes out to the podcast folks. Uh, I talk a little about the 80 20 rule. Um, and I also talk a little bit about uh, some closures that have been going on, which I think I want to kind of touch base here. So uh, word got out this week that one dome up in San Francisco was closing. Uh, and as we also know, also up in San Francisco, uh, the speakeasy is uh, spinning down their show. I think the last one is next month, I want to say. Uh, the company that has the speakeasy, Boxcar Theater, they're holding on to the palace and uh, they'll be spinning something else up. So I don't expect that venue to be dark for very long, but I understand that when things start to close and look, um, you know, Delusion the Blue Blade had a shorter second run here in L.A. that I think people anticipated. Uh, The Willows, which we thought was going to have a longer run, uh, that one stopped down. Although in that case, that had everything to do with the fact that uh, summer came along and it was was too light outside for them to do two shows a night, right? So sometimes there's just just realities that you're up against that have nothing to do with demand and everything to do with just logistics. And some of that stuff is true here for what we're, we're seeing in terms of these closures. I want to point to people who are kind of unfamiliar with the way theater in general works. Like, it's actually weird to have a long-running show relative to a seasonal show, relative to an 8- or a 12-week run in a, you know, roadhouse or a repertory theater. Um, the Those years-long runs, like, look, Sleep No More and Then She Fell, they're anomalies when you compare to the rest of theater, right? <clears throat> Broadway is having this season right now where it's just a bloodbath. Um, show after show after show is shutting down, uh, and that's always tied to sort of the Tony cycle, right? Like, so much money is lost on Broadway that almost everything's about getting a Tony. Um, it's and, and then, you know, once something's a Tony Award winner, then it's got legs. So it's a very odd, insular kind of world. Um, so, and what what we're trying to create out here is very different. And it's going to take a long time before that culture has fully baked. What I don't want people to do is I don't want them to get jumpy. And I don't want people particularly when the economy's in a weird space um, or when things aren't maybe opening up the way they want to. Like there's a lot of chatter around, say, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. There's all these articles coming out that are like, oh, oh my, like, oh, look, like someone's run a drone and heat mapped it. And like there aren't as many people in there. Yeah. And also a lot of the annual pass holders are blocked out right now. So are there, were there choices that were made? I don't know. I had this thought today. It's like, you know, like, you know, a program gets set up, something gets built, and then uh, if someone else, you know, doesn't handle it and in, in, in run it the way necessarily it was meant to be built, uh, things can kind of come off the wheels, right? The wheels can come off the bus. 
Um, I don't know the intricacies of Star Wars land in terms of, you know, the op side and the design side and all of that. But I do know that the, that the merchandise is like selling out constantly and uh, the lines are enough to get a million people through in six weeks through the Millennium Falcon, which is, you know, nothing. A million riders. That's, that's not a small thing. Um, patience, young Padawan, is what I'm urging right now. And look to the things that are doing well. Look to Meow, Meow Wolf. Look to Sleep No More. Look to Then She Fell. These are things that know what they are. These are things that have a very clear um, artistic voice. They have a appeal that reaches out across a lot of different demographics, um, or at least they they can in the case of Meow Wolf, Sleep No More, uh, somewhat, but on the adult side, then she fell you know, serves smaller numbers of people, but definitely is constantly bringing folks through. It's not a, it's not an infinite resource, the number of people who are going to be interested in this stuff, at least not at first, but in a world where there's an infinite amount of meh content, right? Um, the stuff that has something special to it stands out above and beyond the medium that it comes through. Netflix just had its first really bad quarter in maybe ever, um, which is a combination of them raising prices and they're just having a kind of an approach to making content that was like, no, well, yeah, let's let David Harbour just mess around and make a comedy special. Why not? Meh. Um, and, you know, feature films that maybe no one cares about. Um, and then other stuff that people do care about. And then Adam Sandler movies that apparently 70 million people watched worldwide, which, well, there's no accounting for taste. Um, there, there really, <laughs> really isn't. Also, what does watch mean on Netflix? Does that mean like finish it or just like watch long enough to be, you know, absurdly, morbidly fascinated. And for the record, that was not me with that one. Um, don't, Look at what's going on with individual pieces right now and start saying that the sky is falling on this stuff. Instead, examine them and see what was it about the deals they were doing? What was it about their positioning? What was it about the experiences that were being delivered that maybe either didn't sustain what they were trying to do business-wise or didn't live up to the potential of what they had constructed. Um, this stuff works when it's done right. And when it's not done right, it still gets a lot of buzz. And when it's done wrong, it lasts for a while and then it goes away. Like everything does. And as we get into the big time, and as this becomes more established, we will see more shows closing. We will also, maker willing, see some more shows that have very, very long legs. And I look around at what's happening in Los Angeles right now, 
And I see that we're at that point in the cycle where some folks who have worked in the space for a long time are about to be opening things that have the potential for legs that are proven concepts or they are proven companies and they are going to give themselves the runways they need to make it. I've got the nest opening up in September and we know the nest is good and it's going to be expanded and it's going to have the ability to stay where it is for probably as long as they can just keep the logistics of it running. We've got the Speakeasy Society doing a series at Two-Bit Circus. So they've got their venue locked and they've got their story and they've found a way to let that thing run and keep it going. And that's going to run as long as people want to check it out. And that's just the beginning. And I would not be shocked. And I say that specifically because I do not have any other intel. Uh, I would not be shocked to know that there are other companies looking at the exact same sort of structure because now is the point in time where we must start as a community reaching out beyond the established fan base and make some experiences that really take advantage of this hunger there is out there for something more than what you can get by streaming things to your TV and your phone. Because people want it. They show up for it. They want to be excited. And it's up to you, dear creators, to make it. And it's up to you, dear patrons, to help people find it. Much like you can help people find us, it is important that people like and share our content. It is important that people give us reviews on iTunes. It helps people find the show. Oh, there's a segue for you. Um, I find all of that ridiculous and often distasteful, but nevertheless, it is how the world works. So please, 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 uh, if you cannot contribute financially, the number one thing you can do is spread our stuff around and help more people find it. A rising tide truly lifts all boats. And yeah, I know Antarctica is in the Arctic are milk melting and soon the boats will be deep inland. But this is just a metaphor and not a climate report. So please help the boats rise. There are boats. We want them out of the dry dock right now. Uh, don't worry too much at this moment about the broader implications of the metaphor. This is how my brain works, y'all. I make no apologies for it. Ah, I hear a bell. I think it's the ice cream man. I'm going to go chase that. Okay, um, let's do the credits. The music for this episode is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society, the backers of No Persinium, the sustaining backers, who I forgot to mention at the start of the show, so oops, sorry guys, uh, are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Herstan, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. Thank you all for keeping us going, and please forgive me for forgetting the sting at the beginning. I cannot have you guys abandon me. Um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, out here, you know, just, uh, yeah, let's go. You can help us out by going to patreon.com slash no proscenium and help us reach that $1,500 a month goal and start socking away money for travel plans for the team, uh, and go well beyond that and, um, make us a real boy as it were. 
You can tell us about your shows by sending us an email at pitches at noprosinium.com. And we're at noprosinium on Twitter, at no underscore proscenium on Instagram, and back to at noprosinium on Facebook. All right. Until next time, I will see you at the show.